welcome to City Breaks London, episode 19, The Royal Parks. I'm Marion Jones. This is the London series of City Breaks. You may know already we've got other series, Florence, St. Petersburg, Seville, and whichever city I'm dealing with, the aim is always the same, to offer all the history and culture that you'd like to know if you're thinking of visiting the city, or have been, or just want to know for general knowledge purposes, and which you'd like to research for yourself, if only you had the time. And I am particularly looking forward to today's episode, because it gives me a chance to talk about one of the things in London which really does make it the, one of the splendid cities to visit, something that not every other city has, and that's those wonderful parks right in the centre of the city, often referred to as the Green Lungs. Large, varied, beautiful, definitely, definitely something you should include on your London itinerary almost however little time you've got to spend in the city, because everyone needs a breather now and then, don't they? I found lots and lots of quotations from people who love London's parks, and I've picked just one to open the episode with, and it's from the 19th century, written by a French visitor, one Léon Paul Blouet, who put it as follows. Nothing is more exuberant than the beauty of the parks. Take a walk across them in the early morning, when there's no one stirring, and the nightingale is singing high up in some gigantic tree. It is one of the rare pleasures that you will find within your reach in London. If the morning be fine, you will not fail to be struck with a lovely pearl-grey haze, soft and subdued, that I never saw in such perfection as in the London parks. Yes, quite. I think I should define my terms, so by the Royal Parks, I don't in fact mean all of them, I think there are eight in total, but I'm going to focus in on five, the ones that are in the centre of London. So we're talking Regent's Park in North London, and four more, which form what I've seen described as a green necklace through the centre of the city. And that would be Green Park, St James's Park, both of those right by Buckingham Palace, and then the other two parks which blend one into another, Hyde Park and Kensington Gardens. I have already mentioned quite a number of lovely green spaces around and about the city. There was Hampstead Heath, if you remember, in episode 17, and gorgeous, beautiful Royal Greenwich Park in episode 18. Still to come in future episodes, there'll be Kew and Richmond, Hampton Court and Windsor Great Park. But for today, we're talking about the Royal Parks, those pockets of land which mainly used to be owned by monarchy, used by them for their recreation, hunting, deer parks, that sort of thing, Henry VIII particularly, and which, as London became more urban, gradually shrank its size, which various kings, as I'll explain a bit later, turned into royal parks, and which, in the crucial year for this topic at least, of 1851, when the Crown Lands Act was passed, became at last accessible to the public. So, let's start with the oldest of the lot, St James's Park, 68 acres or so from the front of Buckingham Palace right down towards Trafalgar Square. It's hard to picture now, but actually, centuries ago, that was marshland, a marshy field, in fact, surrounding a hospital for lepers, St James's Hospital, and used by the people who lived there for keeping pigs. Henry VIII, however, had it drained. He had an eye on it. He was thinking it would be a good place to make a nursery for his deer. And no sooner had he done that when, in the 1530s, he had the hospital rebuilt as a palace for himself. St James's Palace from 1698 
became actually the official monarch's residence in London because Whitehall Palace, where they'd been before that, had just burnt down. St James's Palace today has been much rebuilt, in fact, but that's the history of it. There were various changes to the design of the park, but what's there today really took shape in the 17th century, when Henrietta Maria, Queen and wife of Charles I, brought in a French gardener, or perhaps more accurately, a French garden designer, one André Mollet, to transform it, make it less rural and, I suppose more French really, a formal garden. Certainly a more formal layout. So he put a long canal running through the land, lines of trees on both sides, a little island in the middle of the water, which he wanted to be a haven for exotic birds. In those days there were parrots in gilded cages in there, there were two pelicans, a gift to Charles II, so Henrietta Maria's son, from the Russian ambassador. There are still pelicans there today, actually, very possibly descendants of that very first pair. And it was popular with the royal family. Henrietta loved it, her husband Charles loved it too. He used to take his walks there, he made a few additions, a lodge, a couple of gondolas which he'd acquired as a present from the Doge of Venice, and he took an interest in the planting too, having a physic garden and a flower garden designed. The physic garden, I think, means a herbal garden to grow plants that could be used for medicinal purposes. It was very much a pleasure garden too. An observer in the 1660s wrote about watching people sliding with their skates, as he put it, along the canal. So it all sounds idyllic, but actually it was less idyllic at night. It was, in fact, notorious at night. Nice folk, it was said, really should keep away after dark. One Lord Rochester even wrote a poem about this, a long list of the sort of people you could expect to meet if you went there at night and what it was they might be up to. So here's a little extract. Great ladies, chambermaids and drudges, the rag picker and heiress trudges, carmen, divines, great lords and tailors, prentices, poets, pimps and jailers, footmen, fine fops, do here arrive, and here, promiscuously, they swive. I'm afraid the meaning of the word swive is lost on me, but I think we can assume it was nothing too savoury. Things didn't really improve in the 18th century. It was known then, too, that if you went to St James's Park at night, you were quite likely to meet robbers and prostitutes. James Boswell wrote that for him it was a place to go if one wished to be accosted, as he put it, by several ladies of the town. Today, it is the only one of the large London parks not enclosed by railings, and it's just a lovely place for a stroll. Somewhere where you would hardly guess that you're actually just a few minutes' walk from Charing Cross and Trafalgar Square. You've got Buckingham Palace at one end, Admiralty Arch and Trafalgar Square at the other, and the Mall all down one side. In fact, the idea of a circular walk's quite nice, down the Mall and back up through the park, or vice versa. Lost in the middle, you might see any one of 30 species of bird. There are ducks and geese and gulls and pelicans. Pretty little bridge in the middle, from which you can get great views of Buckingham Palace, Horse Guards Parade, Whitehall, Westminster. And if you happen to be on the wonderfully named Duck Island in the early afternoon, you might even see the pelicans being fed. I think you could actually make a day of a visit to St James's Park by adding in one or two visits at one end or the other. So there's Buckingham Palace at the top end, which isn't open all year round, but does have a summer opening season. I think you probably need to book ahead. Or, of course, you could go along at half eleven 
every day in summer, I think less frequently in winter, and see the changing of the guard. Also, just round the corner from Buckingham Palace, there is the Queen's Gallery, so a wonderful art gallery full of all kinds of treasures from the Royal Collection. And just next door to that, the Royal Muse, where you can go in and meet some of the Queen's horses and see some of those fantastic carriages which royalty travel about London in on important days like weddings and the state opening of Parliament. You might remember some of this from episode 8 earlier in the series. At the other end of St James's Park then, or indeed of the Mall, through Admiralty Arch, you come to Trafalgar Square, where you can pause to look at the statues and the lions and admire Nelson's column and so on. Do you remember all this from episode 7? And two places on Trafalgar Square which you can visit without paying any entrance fee at all are the National Gallery and the National Portrait Gallery. There's St James's Palace too, of course, although you can't actually visit that. It's the London residence of various members of the royal family. But if you wander past, you certainly can think about some key moments in history which happened exactly there. It is, for example, where Mary I, the Queen known as Bloody Mary, died, and her heart was buried in the royal chapel inside the palace grounds. It's where Charles I spent the last night before his execution. It was deemed to be close enough to Whitehall to be a fairly quick walk in the morning, but not so close that he would have to lie awake listening to the scaffold being erected. It was exactly there then, in St James's Palace, the night before, when his children were brought to him to say their last farewells. And you can picture him, perhaps, walking to his execution through St James's Park to the banqueting house. His dog, Rogue, said to have followed along behind him. Coming to modern times, it's the building that was used by Prince Charles after his separation from Princess Diana. He's moved to Clarence House now, but he lived there for a number of years. And it was also, in 1997, the place where Princess Diana's body lay until the night before her funeral. You can't visit St James's Palace as such, but there are two chapels connected to it which are open for services. So that's one way to see inside. And if you do that, be aware of the historic events that have happened there. The Chapel Royal is where Charles I took communion on the morning of his execution. And it was also the venue for lots of royal weddings, notably that of George III and Queen Charlotte, and also Victoria and Albert. Then there's the Queen's Chapel, designed by Inigo Jones, and first used by Queen Henrietta Maria, the French and devoutly Catholic wife of Charles I. If you're standing with your back to Buckingham Palace at the top of the Mall, St James's Park leads down in front of you, and off to your left, another area of parkland, Green Park, which on the Royal Park's website I saw described as, quote, a peaceful triangle of mature trees and grasslands, a quiet retreat from city life right next to Buckingham Palace. Green Park is the smallest of the Royal Parks, 47 acres or so, more land enclosed by Henry VIII, turned into a royal park by Charles II. He called it Upper St James's Park, and a brick wall built all around it, set up an ice house inside to supply his household with ice for cooling drinks. There is a story attached to the idea that it was never really developed as a park in quite the same way as most of the other royal parks, because it is said that a feud arose between Charles II and his queen, Catherine of Braganza, over the flowers in this park. Apparently Catherine discovered that Charles had been in the park picking flowers and giving them to another woman, and she was so furious 
that she ordered that every single flower in the park should be pulled up and that no more were to be planted. Being originally on the outskirts of London, it was also known to be a rather dangerous place at night, sort of place where you might come across highwaymen and thieves. Somewhere where the Prime Minister himself, Horace Walpole, was robbed. Daytime was less dangerous, I think. It was a place for ballooning, for public firework displays. In fact, the event for which Handel wrote the music for the Royal Fireworks took place in Green Park in 1749. In 1820, the architect John Nash was asked to landscape the park, which he did, but not to the extent that was done in some of the other royal parks, and still today it is perhaps the one with the most rural feel, certainly of those in central London. Lots of grass, lots of trees, not so many flowers, although if you go in spring you will see the most amazing display of daffodils and crocuses. It's also used occasionally for some very British events. On the Queen's official birthday, there will be a 41-gun salute in Green Park. And here's one of my favourite facts. On the day of the state opening of Parliament, there is also a gun salute, which takes place at, wait for it, 11.08am. How British is that? If you are listening from beyond our shores, and occasionally wonder if the Brits aren't slightly bonkers, I think that might be the sort of fact that you can use to make your case. So then, let's leave London's smallest royal park, move west a little to the largest of the royal parks, 350 acres or so, Hyde Park. Created in 1536, again, Henry VIII seized the land which he saw would do as a good deer park and opened to the public by James I, so in the early 17th century. This park too was very popular with Charles II, somewhere he liked to go coach driving in fact. In 1663, an observer noted that Charles was in the park riding his carriage and so was his mistress, Lady Castlemaine, although she was in her own carriage. They were both, he said, showing off their equipage and skills. There are lots of events from history that are connected to Hyde Park and one corner of it, known as Speaker's Corner, certainly is worth a mention. A little corner of London where even today Anybody can set up their soapbox and make a speech, as long as it's within the bounds of the law, about actually any topic they like. How did this come about? Well, it's got quite macabre beginnings, in fact, because the spot is relatively near to somewhere called Tyburn, or Tyburn Gallows, the place where people were hanged. It was a convention that anyone condemned to die was allowed to make a final speech. And even after 1783, when the gallows were dismantled and taken to Newgate Prison, it was still the tradition that people would come to this corner of Hyde Park to give their opinions, to make speeches, to talk to any crowd that would amass. And then in the 19th century, something happened which really cemented this tradition. There was supposed to be a meeting of the Reform League there to demand that more people should be given the vote. But the government banned it and went to the lengths of having the park locked so that the demonstrators wouldn't be able to get in. Result, three days of rioting. And so eventually, something called the Parks Regulation Act was passed, stating that, subject to certain conditions, people would have the right to meet in Hyde Park and to speak freely. And from then, right up until today, it's been a place for public demonstrations, for rallies. The suffragettes, for example, held a lot of meetings there. For example, on Women's Day in 1908, when 250,000 women marched to Hyde Park to listen to 20 different speakers. And more recently, in 2003, when Speaker's Corner 
was the place for the huge rally, perhaps a million people or more, who gathered to protest against military action in Iraq. Another momentous event which took place in Hyde Park is the Great Exhibition of 1851. You might remember I talked about that in some detail in episode 12, Victoria and Albert's London. So let me just remind you that it was in Hyde Park that the Crystal Palace was built for Prince Albert's Great Exhibition, and that over six million visitors came during the months when it was on. One in four of the British population, apparently, came to Hyde Park to see it. And here, just to set the scene, is a description from one George Howard, writing in his journals in 1851. The young green of spring, the boats on the serpentine, the flags round the top of the long crystal roof, were all full of life and flutter. The scene was beautiful, gorgeous, unparalleled, inspiring. And here, a second diary extract, written by no less a person than Queen Victoria herself, who wrote about her arrival into the park for the opening day of the exhibition, as follows. This day is one of the greatest and most glorious of our lives. It is a day which makes my heart swell. The park presented a wonderful spectacle, crowds streaming through it, carriages and troops passing, quite like the coronation day. The day was bright and all was bustle and excitement. At half past eleven, the whole procession in nine state coaches was set in motion. And there followed then lots more pomp and ceremony, as described in the previous episode. Something else to look out for just outside Hyde Park is the little corner of London that really belongs to the Duke of Wellington. So Wellington Arch, nearby Apsley House, which is where he lived, and the statue of the great man. So the archway was originally designed to go outside Buckingham Palace, but it was moved here in the 1870s, and originally it did have on top of it a ginormous statue of the Duke of Wellington. It was so large that it was quite ridiculed, and in fact at the point when they moved the arch here, they quietly removed it and replaced it with the bronze statue which is there now, something called Peace and Her Four-Horse Chariot, set up in memory of King Edward VII, it having been apparently his favourite statue. Nearby, though, there is a statue of Wellington on his horse, Copenhagen, his favourite horse, the one he rode at the Battle of Waterloo, and who, bless him, when he died, was buried with full military honours. Apsley House was originally known as Number One London because it was the first house in London after the Tollgate when you arrived from the Knightsbridge area, and after the Battle of Waterloo, when Arthur Wellesley, soon to be made the Duke of Wellington, returned triumphant from his victory against Napoleon, it was given to him. It's a museum and art gallery today. You can go round, you can see the house pretty much laid out as it was when he lived there. You can go, for example, through the dining room, where he used to hold his annual Waterloo banquet on the anniversary of the battle, something to which all surviving officers were invited, in which he would dust down his thousand-piece silver service. You can go down into the basement and inspect some of his personal memorabilia, things like his travelling canteen of cutlery and his dressing case, and also his death mask. But I would definitely say that the most memorable item you will see in the entire building is the massive statue of Napoleon, which stands at the foot of the stairs. It's much, much bigger than life-size. It's completely nude, and I read into it the message that I think Wellington was probably sending, which reads something like, I defeated this huge man, and now I'm humiliating him. Anyway, you were looking around the house where the Duke of Wellington lived for 35 years, 
He was a politician and a statesman in his post-battle days. And if you go on a guided tour, someone will probably point out the iron bars on the windows, which he had to have set up there for his own protection, because he wasn't actually all that popular. He had a lot of views people didn't like. He was against extending the vote, for example, to ordinary people. Apparently he didn't like railways either, because he thought they would, quote, encourage commoners to move around more. And so every now and then rioters would turn up at his house, and he needed to be protected. OK, so Hyde Park today. Lovely place to run, to walk, to cycle, to go on boats. If you go round it, you could see the Serpentine, which is called in the rough guide Hyde Park's Curvaceous Lake, created in 1730 because Queen Caroline, wife of George II, wanted somewhere to go boating. It's a lovely area with a lido and a cafe. You can get rowing boats, you can go on a pedalo. You might like to visit the Princess Diana Memorial Fountain. And do be aware that this being a royal park, on certain days, such as the birthday of the Queen or Prince Charles, there's likely to be a 41-gun royal salute. On the other side of the Serpentine from Hyde Park is the fourth of the royal parks I'm going to talk about today, and that's Kensington Gardens. Described in the 1850s by an American visitor, Nathaniel Hawthorne, as, quote, the most beautiful piece of artificial woodland and park scenery that I have ever seen. 270 acres or so, linked to Hyde Park, but I think perhaps the posher end. When it was opened to the public in 1733, that was on Saturdays and Sundays only, and there was a strict dress code. The layout that you see today was begun really under George II, and especially his wife Caroline. She oversaw the new designs, the setting up of walks and crosswalks, all very thoughtful and tastefully done and written about, in fact, in a publication from 1733 called The Gentleman's Magazine, where the writer wrote some rhyming couplets all about how tasteful her garden design was, and making it clear what a contrast this was with the gardens that were designed in France, which were rather brasher and more show-offy. So this is how the author put it. At every step, new scenes of beauty rise. Here, well-judged vistas meet the admiring eyes. A river there waves through the happy land, and ebbs and flows at Caroline's command. No costly fountains with proud vigour rise, nor with their foaming waters slash the skies. To such false pride be none but Louis prone. All she lays out in pleasure is her own. Being in Kensington, so one of London's posher areas, it became known, particularly in the 19th century, as a place where you'd see a lot of nannies and nursery maids pushing their charges around in prams. Some efforts were made to open it up to the more general public. In 1855, for example, drinking fountains were set up, and in 1899 they went as far as installing public lavatories. Although not everybody liked this sort of populism, there was a Russian ambassador's wife, for example, who complained that the park was now only for the middle class, and that, quote, good society no longer went there, except to drown itself. So if you visit Kensington Gardens today, of course you can see the Serpentine. There are some Italian gardens, a lovely little symmetrically laid out area with lots of fountains. There are the Serpentine galleries too, not one but two art galleries, with a sort of changing array of temporary exhibitions. And there's the Albert Memorial, also mentioned in episode 12. So I won't describe it again here, but I might just mention that I enjoyed the description of it in the rough guide, 
whose author notes that, quote, the pomp of the monument is overwhelming. And last but absolutely not least, in North London, Regent's Park, 395 acres dating from the 1820s. More hunting ground was taken here and given over to John Nash to design. Very much a classy park, bounded on three sides by Georgian terraces and on the fourth side by the Regent's Canal. If you just want a pleasant walk, seek out the Broad Walk and Avenue Gardens full of flowers and fountains and statues. There are hidden bits too. There's St John's Lodge Gardens, for example. St John's Lodge, having been the first house to be built in Regent's Park, had its own garden, which I saw described in a book called London by Tube as, quote, a secret garden ornamented with sculptures and ponds and birdsong and nature. There's another little area known as Queen Mary Gardens, opened in 1932 and named after Queen Mary, wife of George V. It boasts the largest collection of roses in London and what I saw described as, quote, a spectacular delphinium border, begonia garden, waterfall and lake. So really another corner of London where you can forget that you're in a large city at all. There's a boating lake, there are ornamental ponds, there are waterfalls. You can pop in for a quiet half hour, or better still, allow plenty of time, wander at will and just enjoy. There are various other places within the park that you might want to visit. Regent's Park Open Air Theatre, for example. Britain's oldest professional outdoor theatre, opened in 1932. The first performance was of Twelfth Night. And every summer there's a programme of outdoor plays there. Or your delectation. 1,250 seats, apparently. A bit smaller in scale is the Memorial Bandstand, where there are often lunchtime concerts. It was moved to Regent's Park from Richmond Park in the 1970s, but was tragically the scene in 1982 of an IRA attack when seven soldiers from the Royal Green Jackets were killed and another 24 injured. And one of the main reasons for visiting Regent's Park will be to go to the zoo was founded in 1826 when it was decided to rehome the animals from the Royal Menagerie. It was originally going to be somewhere for scientific research but by 1847 it had been decided to open it to the public and it's a place which can boast a number of firsts so the world's first public aquarium for example, the world's first insect house and the first hippopotamus ever seen in Europe. He arrived in 1850 and rejoiced in the name of Obesh. Other famous inhabitants have been Jumbo the Elephant, who lived there in 1865, and Winnie the Bear, said to have been the inspiration in 1914 for A.A. A. Milne, who visited the zoo with his son Christopher Robin, and then went on to write the Winnie the Pooh stories. London Zoo, as it's known, was also in the news for 12 traumatic days in the 1965, that being the length of time that Gold the Eagle, who'd escaped from an enclosure inside the zoo, spent flying around the park. And here then, to finish the episode, an extract from The Diary of Anne Chalmers, written on the 22nd of May, 1830, about the day she was taken as a little girl to the zoological garden, as she calls it, in Regent's Park. It is a most delightful spectacle, the article opens, and she goes on to explain there are many more animals and birds there than I can enumerate, but I shall mention the monkeys, whose tricks were very diverting. I brought them some nuts and biscuits, 
and whenever they saw them there was a commotion in their cages, and paws were stretched out in all directions for them. While I was bending to give a weak one a nut, which a superior was taking from it, my bonnet was seized from a cage above, and the front nearly torn from it. So if you do find yourself at Regent's Park Zoo, do think about that little girl nearly 200 years ago, and the drama of the monkeys and the very nearly torn bonnet. So, I hope that gives you a flavour of the five royal parks, any of which you may easily pass on a day in central London, and any of which provide an idyllic setting for a little break or even a long rest. There's beauty, there's somewhere to sit, there are often things to do, boating, etc. And there's a lot of history and a lot of stories to reflect upon while you relax. I do hope I've enthused you for them. They are, I really do think, some of the loveliest parts of London. And, dare I say it without sounding too nationalistic, unrivaled in any other city that I've visited to date. Although I do confess to a soft spot for the Park Maria Luisa in Seville. So, next week then, I'll be leaving the parks behind and looking at another aspect of London, which makes for a whole lot of very pleasant stopping-off points, and that's the River Thames. Let's go up and down both banks, have a look at some of the places on the river, and recall some of the moments of history which took place on it. I hope very much that you'll join me for that, and for the moment, just thank you once again very much for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>